Are y'all even here still? I mean, you guys can go. No, I'm just captivated by my daughter, uh, Kennedy. She just, and you know what's so funny about this is, is that obviously every male wants to pray for a boy. I think that's like a, a male thing, right? You want somebody you can toss the pig skinner with or whatever. And I remember telling him, man, it's going to be a boy. He's like, well, what if we get a girl? No. Telling you by faith, it's a boy. Well, you need to prepare. Ah! Get out of here. Get behind me, Satan. And then we did the ultrasound, and um, the doctor's like, or the, what do you call it? Tech, something. Radiologist, something. I don't know. Ultrasound tech. Thank you. And they looked, and they said, what is it? What do you guys want to guess first? And I go, a boy. <laughs> and she goes, no, that's a girl. <laughs> and uh, I looked over, and Emily's, like, crying and goes to grab my hand. And I was like, <laughs> defeated. It sounds so silly now. And I was defeat. I was like, man, God, I, you know, I prayed. I thought, thought it was going to be. And now it's like I couldn't imagine having a boy. Not that having boys are bad or anything like that, but it's just like God knows what we need before we know what we need. And God has this way. God's got this thing about being God. Right? I'm like, come on, God, let me get in. And he's like, oh, I'm God here, right? And so you might not understand what's going on in your life. And I hope, and I, hope I can help you today. Because we're going to be talking about prayer. And about the name that's above any other name. And the way Jesus taught us to pray. But it, you might not understand what's going on in your life. And you don't have to understand and that you don't have to write out this timeline of where, okay, God, I expect you to do this here, you th this there, to, you know, and we, we like to plan those things out. But what I've found out with God is that if you really want to follow him, he's calling you into mysteries all the time. And you never really know what he's up to. But what I've learned this long, this is why it's important for you to have a history with God. You need an Abraham-like history with God, where you've not followed him for a month or a week or a, a day here or a day there, but you have some years under your belt of following in relationship with Jesus. Because if you'll be faithful, you'll be able to look back and say, wow, I didn't know what God was doing then, but I trusted him and I stepped out and I continued to walk with him and follow him. And as I did, I can look back and now I have a history with God, so now I have faith to take the next step with him into the next journey that he has for us. When we don't have a history with God, we've got nothing to go back on. And what Jesus is trying to get us to do and is when he's teaching us about prayer is that he's trying to get us back to our point of origin. He's basically telling us where we came from and he's bringing us to the place of where we came from so that we can know where we started and where we're going when we understand the heart of God as the relationship unfolds. 
So instead of trying to get a bunch of information from God or leaning on Him when it's your next crisis, instead of getting a bunch of information, uh, why don't you press into transformation? Begin to press into Him and through relationship with Him, He's going to slowly envelop some things and develop some things in the inside of you where He can begin to change you through relationship into His image. That this is what God wants to do. He's conforming you into His image because He's the place where you started from anyway. So we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 6 today. And this is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. But chapters 5 through 7 is what we would call the Sermon on the Mount. Is that Jesus goes up, and, and as he's doing works in Matthew chapter 4, the Bible tells us that many different people started to follow him. Some from Galilee, some from Decapolis, some from all over. So this wasn't just so a few Jewish people following him. This, he had developed a big crowd. It was some Jewish, some Gentile. It was a big crowd of people. And so he goes up onto a hill, what we would call, what we would call a hill, they might call a mountain, but he goes up on this hill and he begins to teach. And what he unwraps in Matthew chapter 5 to, to chapter 7 is, is he begins to wrap out, unwrap what it is to be in the kingdom of God. See, every kingdom has to have a king. All right? So Jesus is saying, I'm the king. And every kingdom has to have a king, but it also has to have a law or a constitution. So if you will, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus unwrapping the constitution of God. In the Old Testament, they, had, uh, they were the people of Israel and they had the Torah. And so the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus rolling out the law in the New Testament time. A, king not only, a kingdom not only has a king and has a law, but it also has a space, a place to rule, right? And so in the Old Testament, that was Israel proper, and that was the place where God wanted to uh, be king over a people, and that people reflect his nature into the earth as his peculiar force on the earth, and through that, everything else would flow, okay? So Jesus is the king, and in the Sermon on the Mount is the law, but then he does something else, and he changes. This is where he flips the complete script, is that this king doesn't come and conquer you and make you bow down and do his will. This king comes in and redeems and saves you and then pulls you into his kingdom, not as just a servant, but as a relative, as a son and daughter of God. So God's kingdom changes from a place to the hearts of those who would, in faith, believe in him. And so Jesus is turning the world upside down one heart at a time. And so that's why when we preach the gospel, we're preaching the gospel that the kingdom of God might be set up. Not necessarily in a particular place, but in the hearts of the people. And if God gets our heart, he'll get the place. Right? Right? 
And that's what this whole thing is about. So as he's unrolling this, he's talking to us about giving. He's talking to us about fasting. He's talking to us about prayer. He's talking to us about holy living. He's talking to us about all these things that he is rolling out that will, will bring us into the reality that we are to be a people of his kingdom and reflect that kingdom into the earth. That you are the sacred space that God wants to rule. And you need to know where you come from. You come from God the Father. So God begins to pull out and begins to unroll. How do we commune with this God? How do we pray and fellowship? Let's look at the text here. Matthew chapter, five, chapter 6, sorry, verse 5. And Jesus says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Come on now. When you pray, go into the room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Hmm, circle that, many words. Verse 9, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Sounds like he's doing an anti-prayer teaching here, doesn't it? <laughs> Verse 9, pray then like this, our Father. Whew. Oh, man. He's telling us where we come from. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So here is Jesus surrounded by all this crowd that has begun to follow him. As I said in Matthew chapter 4, these crowds are from Galilee, Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan, the the, the, the cop, I don't even know how to say it, but it's a ten city Gentile town and all these different all these crowds from different kind of people are following and in Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 the Bible says that seeing the crowds he went up on a mountain and his disciples came to him now his disciples at this point wouldn't have been the 12 because he hadn't even picked the 12 yet so here he's calling all this multitude that are Jews and Gentiles all together coming to listen to him at a mountain and he's calling them all disciples of God. 
Uh, disciple means learner. In other words, they were wanting to hear what Jesus had to say where they might learn what the kingdom was all about. In other words, Jesus on top of this mountain was kind of like a political speech he was giving. He was saying that if you're going to follow me, your allegiance can't be to a certain political party. It can't be to a certain sect of Americans and make it us versus them. He says, I'm telling you right now that you're going to have to have an allegiance to my kingdom above any other kingdom that is on this earth. Because my kingdom comes from the Father. And when you pray, I'm not just saying He's my Father. I'm saying when you pray, you got to say, Oh, Father, because we all got the same daddy at the end of the day. So He's bringing us to this place. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, and we know there was a multitude there, right? So let's get it Arkansas terms. And when y'all pray... It's important to note that this y'all was, some of them were pagan. Some of them been praying to God knows who. Artemis and Zeus and everything else. Some of them had, were, were Jews and they had been praying these well-scripted and crafted prayers. They had been praying the Psalms, and, and they were known as a people of prayer. There was a certain thing that they would do uh, two times a day. They would, dis, they would recite this. It's called the Shema, and it is in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, I believe, and they would do that two times a day. There was this other prayer that was called the 18 Benedictions, and it was this beautiful prayer, and if you print it out on the Internet, it comes out to be about five pages long. Right? And so they would do that prayer, a pretty impressive prayer. They would do that three times a day. And they would, like we said earlier, they would pray the Psalms. There was a prayer at this time that Jesus is coming into the scene. There was a prayer when you see a lake. You were to say this prayer when you saw the lake and were on the water. Uh, when, there was a prayer when you got new furniture. Okay, uh, that when you got new furniture, you recited. So, so this had been an integral part of Jewish life, and it was all about pretense and saying the exactly the right word at exactly the right time and multiple, multiple times. So then Jesus comes in and with this revolutionary idea and says that when you pray, don't pray out in public to get a public show of things, right? Like nothing's wrong with public prayer. But when it becomes a show, suddenly I'm leveraging the name of God and my own spirituality to begin to get others to look at me and to gain credibility with them. Suddenly I'm not serving God anymore. I'm serving men because I want men to look at me and think that I'm something that I'm not. So Jesus, when he says to pray, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. And the hypocrite in the Greek language was another word for actor. That when God asks us to pray, He says, Don't act! Don't pretend that you're something that you're not. Don't we all pray more spiritual than what we are? Okay, I got two honest people in this whole play, so... Right? Don't we drop our voice and go to King James? Yeah. Dear God. 
reconcile the earth and sanctify my body and take this food and turn it to manna that would manifest as miracles in my body. And Right? Jesus is saying, the Father ain't looking for that. <laughs> the Father says, would you quit acting? Would you quit performing? And would you come to me the way a child comes to their father? Jesus is getting into the crux of Jewish life, giving prayer and fasting. Remember earlier he talks about giving. And remember what he says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Seems weird, right? What Jesus is saying is, is I want you operating in this principle where eventually it starts to become like second nature. The best way I can explain this would be, have you ever danced? Wait, don't say that. Somebody might get... They might get in trouble here at church. But have you ever come in and you heard your favorite song? And your shoulders start. <laughs> you make that owl with the buggy. You start singing that favorite song. Before you know it, you're just... What happened was, is you were moved into a dance. You went from discipline to something that made you move and inspired you to do something without even thinking about it. And when you're dancing, are you thinking about your next move? You're making it up as you go. That you're being moved into a dance with God. So that my left hand don't have to do the same thing my right hand does. That's kind of weird. But if I mix them up a little bit and my left hand doesn't know what my right hand is doing. So he's saying, if you come into relationship with me, this is going to become second nature. And how you give is going to be your left hand ain't going to know what your right hand's doing because it's all muscle memory at that point. And you're doing something because you've done it so much it becomes a part of your nature through the relationship that you've got with God that you don't even have to think about it. You just do it. Amen. Have you ever noticed this at a potluck? Right? Everybody's having fun, high-fiving, joking. And then it's, hey, time to pray. Everybody goes from having fun to this. We go from dance to discipline. And God's trying to get us from discipline to dance. Jesus is saying, don't turn the things of God into rituals that don't mean anything. 
God's saying, don't turn these things into that because you got to know this is a family thing. God's saying, our Father who art in heaven, He's saying, this is where you came from. And this is where I'm trying to get you back to. And I need you to stop with the rituals and stop with the stuff. And I need you to quit pretending you're something that you're not. I need you to get honest with me. I need you to cry out to me. I need you to quit pretending that everything's okay when it's not okay and God's okay with that but he won't meet you in the place where you're being a hypocrite and an actor God is saying drop the act drop the hypocrisy and if you will just come unto me I will meet you in that place the way a father meets his children to turn the discipline into a dance I'm out of breath. Y'all give me a second. And if you're like me, man, I've spent a lot of my life confused by prayer. I felt guilty about not praying enough. Don't go telling everybody your pastor felt guilty he didn't pray enough now. You ever been there and not even knowing what to say in prayer? God, I don't even got the words. And you're wondering, if I don't have the words, will you still answer and meet me in the place? But he tells of these hypocrites, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and street corners. But he says they have their reward. Verse 8, he says, don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask. So it sounds like God's trying to get the word thing out of the way so that you can just step into relationship and begin to flow with him in relationship and begin to move in that way. Now people tell me, how do I pray when I'm really mad and upset and don't know how to pray? I said, say this. God, I'm really mad and upset, and I don't know how to pray. <laughs> like if we posture ourselves a certain way, God's fooled. Like, hey, God, I'm really enjoying this prayer time. <laughs> and God's like, oh, wow, yes, I can tell. And we treat God like a slot machine. Just Maybe he'll answer this time. When God's calling us into relationship, He already knows what we need. That maybe He just likes to hang out with us. That's hard to receive because we know us. Sometimes I don't like to hang out with me. But I'm not perfect love either. Yeah, I'm not perfect love. Kennedy, she prays over our dinner. Sometimes when we have guests, she gets too shy, but around our table, she'll pray over the dinner, or pray over the supper, breakfast, whatever. She has her prayer that she's got. And you know what? When she prays, she doesn't bow her head. She watches me. 
because she's wondering if what she's saying is pleasing her father. So I quit bowing my head and I watch her back. And mama's got her head bowed in the corner. And we're watching each other, watching each other pray and receive the prayer. And she prays the same prayer. God bless our foods. Bless our hearts. Have a blessed day. And God get rid of the virus. And she says, Daddy, what's a virus? See, that it's not that I'm thinking so much her prayer is doing something magical. It's the fact that I just like to hear her talk. If the Bible talks about groaning with groanings that can't even be uttered, that maybe what we're saying with our words, there's a different prayer by the Spirit in our heart and God's working all these things out as we press in and stay in relationship with Him. See, sometimes we're tempted to think that when we pray, the most important thing is that God should hear. But I think the most important thing when we start praying is that we begin to have the heart of God and we listen to our own prayer and hear what God is trying to tell us. That the prayer unto God would be as God moves our heart, we would hear God's heart as we pray. In other words, God puts the prayer in our heart and then desires to hear it back. And when our prayers don't have the heart of God, it's not God praying. It's just our own self praying back unto God, our own will. So God wants me to have his heart through relationship. And I'm invited to call him Father as we pray. So Jesus says it's not about impressive words or many words or magic words. The scriptures of some of those Gentile groups that were there had been used to practicing magic and witchcraft and sorcery. And the pagan deities didn't believe that their gods were perfect or pure. They really took on a more human dynamic. So in other words, their, their gods could have a really bad day and do something bad. Their gods could have a really good day and be generous. And so they had to figure out these spells and these incantations to get their God in a good mood in order that he might do something for them. So their whole prayer life was really an incantation or a spell that they could manipulate a deity to do their will. And I got to thinking, how many times do I try to use my words to manipulate God to do my will instead of gathering his will and giving myself to the deity. That prayer is about me giving myself to God, not me manipulating him to do what I want him to do. That means God, who is love, 
is all about using love to gain us so that we might be brave enough to ask that we might have him. So love is not a means to obtain rewards. Love is the reward. God is the reward. And if you're wanting something other than God, you're asking for lesser things. That every one of our troubles are to cut us at our root where we might fall on our knees and not ask for that thing to be fixed, but for God to come in and have more of me so that I might have more of him. That the heart of prayer would be relationship with God. Because God is love. So to take the Lord's name in vain is to try to manipulate his love in order for my own vain purposes. To evoke the most powerful name in the universe to perform my will and not to evoke it that he might have me. There's been many books about prayer that try to tell us how to pray. And I think those are good. I don't think those are bad. We need some direction and instruction sometimes on getting to the root of our motives and and different things. But you know, I begin to think about it in this light. What if Abigail and Kennedy were talking in a room and I heard in in the room that they were talking and Abigail looked at Kennedy and said, hey, does talking to dad work for you? And Kennedy says, oh yeah. I wrote a book on it. And for $14.95 plus shipping and handling, I'll give it to you. And you get anything you want from dad. <laughs> we act like God's not in the room. <laughs> like, <laughs> and how does he feel about that? And he's inviting people that have no knowledge of him whatsoever to pray our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. See, I'm convinced that God still raises the dead. He still heals the sick. He still drives out demons. He still grants visions. He still causes people to speak in tongues. But I'm not aware of anywhere in Scripture where there's a how-to to do any of this. And I think God set it up that way where we wouldn't formulize Him into a step method, but that we would say, yeah, you can do these things, but you're going to do these things out of relationship with me and out of growing into this thing naturally through talking the way you would any relationship. That we would be caught up in the rhythm of a dance with God. And this is what C.S. Lewis defined the Trinity as. He called it the great dance. That the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were caught up in a perfect movement where they were submitting and surrendering to one another as they were flowing through the earth. Basically like this. 
When you have a dance partner, you have somebody leading, right? But if the person leading doesn't yield to your leading, you're stepping on toes. It's awkward, right? But when you both get on the same page, suddenly it's a free-flowing thing. And when you do it long enough, you don't even think about it. You start adding stuff, like some twists and some, you know, you know, do the... Patrick Swayze deal, you know. <laughs> Not that I've seen that. Somebody told me about it. <laughs> Moving on. At the burning bush, God reveals his name to Moses. And the name that he reveals to him is called the Tetragrammaton. And the old Hebrew didn't have any consonant, or it didn't have any vowels, so it was four consonants, yod heh vod heh. And we don't even know how they pronounce the name. The language is gone. But Moses says, who am I going to tell sent me? And so the best we can come up with is maybe Yahweh. But the name was lost. It's kind of like God reveals his name and then men like quickly try to bury it. <laughs> Don't say that. And that the yod Hey vah Hey are three letters or four letters that you can say without articulating your lips and without moving your tongue. So the idea is, is that God's name is like breathing. Yod, hey, ah, hey. So who am I going to tell them sent me? <sighs> we'll turn into Benny Hinn and start blowing on people right now. Leave my mask on, though, before I do it that way. <laughs> Got to keep you safe. <sighs> Who am I going to say sent me? Remember how Adam turned to a living soul? <sighs> Who sent me? Just breathe, Moses. I'm the one that gives you life. Moses, you thought that Pharaoh's courts gave you the schooling enough to do what you were called to do. Moses, you thought it was you who made yourself. But God's statement is, it's me who made you and gives you life. Who am I going to say sent me? I am that I am. The one who never had a beginning and never has an end. Who's not becoming something new or different. But that has always been as consistently and wholly, perfectly God.
He sent you. He's sending you Moses. But after the time of Christ, a recitation of that word became illegal, which is ironic because Joel says, and Romans 10 says, he who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So don't say the name because you might get saved. <laughs> don't speak the name. You might actually have an encounter with him. Just create yourself with your own rituals and your own religiosity and your own mindsets and your own stuff. Just do those things. And if you do those things, you'll be okay. But don't say the name. And then when Jesus tells us to pray, he says, I'll tell you the name that's above every other name. Our Father. Our Father. See, we'd all like access to a word or name that's so powerful that would grant us access to the holy, transform reality, make a way where there is no way, and fill our enemies with terror. And yet this name was considered too dangerous to say. So Jesus tells us and them how to pray. And Luke, one of his disciples, asked Jesus, Jesus, teach me to pray. What a question, right? Because I would have said, Jesus, teach me to preach. <laughs> Jesus, teach me to do miracles. When Jesus calms the storm, you know what they ask? Who is this? I think I would have been tempted to say, hey, Jesus, how'd you do that? <laughs> you show me that thing. But they were so shocked, so alarmed. They said, I got to know who this guy is. Jesus, what impresses me about you is not what you're doing. It's how effortlessly you talk to God as if he's your own father. Jesus, teach me how to pray. See, if we'll learn how to pray and connect to the Father's heart, you'll have healing in your hands. If you learn what it is to connect and commune with God, the overflow of that will bleed into every other area that you need Him to bleed into. It's Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. That what God is asking for is not the perfect prayer or even the perfect life. What God is asking for is you. Can he have you? Can he have you just the way you are? So that he can begin to work on you where you can't take credit for the change, but you've got to give glory unto God to say, only God could turn me into what I am now. Now you're a vessel of grace at that point, and you're not pointing your finger at everybody else. 
your statement would be, but for the grace of God, so goes I. And suddenly I don't have any enemies when I'm walking in grace. All I have is brothers and sisters. Well, that's worth a better shout than that, but that's okay. We'll move on. Get y'all to, well, there ain't nowhere open really, is there? So I was going to say the buffet. It ain't got that far yet, so. So Jesus says, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. So what is the holy name? Maybe the name is Yahweh, but maybe it's something else. I can remember me and Em was talking about just this week about watching old movies of Kennedy. You've got it? Oh, well. Y'all you want to hear the first time my daughter said, Dada? Well, three people do. That's enough for me. <laughs> oh, she's coming. That was the. still just reaches in and grabs my heart. She hallowed my name. And it wasn't with impressive words. It was with two syllables. And every time I hear it, my, just something in my chest gets squeezed. Because there's a pain of knowing that that moment's gone and I'll never have it again. But it reminds me that in this moment, I've got to be more cognizant and more aware because that moment will be gone and then there'll be another moment. And I think God the Father is the same way as that each moment spent with us goes in and reaches in and it grabs his heart and it pinches his heart in such a way that it creates this emotion of overflow and that he loves spending time with his kids. There's no way I love spending time with my daughter more than God loves, since he's perfect love, spending time with his children. That the glimpse that I'm getting is just a partial glimpse of the love and overflow that's in the Father's heart that he's drawing us into with prayer. A lot of times, Kennedy don't even know what to say or what to ask. Do you come and say, Daddy, 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 Daddy? What is it? Uh, Daddy, um, uh, da- um, uh, um, da- um, and what she's really saying is, I was just going to see if you were going to stop what you were doing and pay attention to me. That it's not so much about the request, but that I just love to hear her talk. And I know one day she's going to grow up. And she's going to say, hey, Dad. Can you help me with my student loans? And I'm going to say, I ain't your daddy. (laughs) I'm going to Mari. (laughs) 
Is that that bad? Golly. That's having fun. She's going to look at me and say, hey, Dad. And it's still going to reach into my chest and grab my heart. Because she's been given the power to hallow my name. Because of who she is. And because of whose she is. That when I look at her, there's a piece of me in her. And they didn't even know how to even communicate. Abigail, she's still cooing and stuff. And I remember Kennedy. And I would hold her in my arms. I would hold her up. And she would just mutter and babble. And, and I would look at her and I would say, Say dada. Say dada. And she would just, <laughs> no, that was good. Did you hear it? That was close. No, that was, oh, oh, well. But I would hold her up and just say, say dada. And what I was doing was, I was speaking my name into her so that she would say it back and know who she is and where she came from. And then she said it. Dada, Emily, get in here. No, she's going to say mama first. No, she just said it. Get out that recorder. I'm going to record it for you right now. So now me and Kennedy talk about going exploring how to juice a honeysuckle. It's a lost art. How to go down big hills without safety gear. Just kidding, Mom. And it all started with Dada. It all started with just saying a name. And now we've kept talking and we haven't stopped. And she's never had a class on how to talk to dad. She learned to talk to dad by talking to dad. So now I'm working on Abigail, but she's getting closer to mama than dada, so I've got to put in some, <laughs> some overtime. But you know what? Each one of my kids, they're different. I can even tell Abigail's different, even at such a young age. And they're each going to have their own way they talk to me in their own particular language. And I don't expect her to be like Kennedy or talk to me the way Kennedy does. I expect her to have her own talk and own relationship and own unique way that she connects. 
So now to the crowd, Jesus says, pray our Father. Now in the Greek language, it was pater, which is a good translation into Father, but we know that Jesus didn't speak Greek. Greek was the trading language since Alexander had conquered the the known world at that time, and that was the universal language in order that opened up the world to trade. We know Jesus spoke in Aramaic. And that's a language that from the 6th century that Hebrew melded with another Semitic language and became its own language called Aramaic. So we can ascertain from those things that Jesus probably prayed. How do we pray? Our Abba. Does that sound familiar? Our Abba. See, Abba is different than Father because I can be the Father of something, but yet not individually the Father of that of any one thing within that category. In other words, Israel called God Father, but they called Him Father in the sense that He started the nation. But that didn't mean God was my personal father. It'd be like if I said, Henry Ford is the father of automobiles. But Henry Ford is not the dad of your Ford Taurus. Right? So if we can ascertain that when Jesus taught us to pray here that he used Abba, that is family language. And so what he's saying is that you're not just saying God is Father in the sense that he just started this whole thing, but that he's individually each and every person's Father and that he's drawing us into familial language and not into something else. So that God is saying, when you pray, address me as Dad. Address me as dad. Jesus says, and this is what always got Jesus in trouble. He's referring to God as his dad. John chapter 5, verse 7 and 18. My father is working until now, and I am working, says Jesus. In verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was even calling God his own father. Watch this. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 and 16. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you received the spirit of sonship or adoption. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. It is the spirit... The Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And yet, in John chapter 8, Jesus says to some religious that your father is the devil. Now that seems odd. But what I've come to realize is is that the devil can't father or create anything. 
The devil can't father or create anything. The only thing the devil can father, and Jesus says it later on in John chapter 8, is that the devil is the father of lies. So the only way he can father is to get you to believe a lie and get you to live according to that lie. So if you live according to that lie, he's got you fooled into thinking that you're his father. And he'll control you, manipulate you, and get you to do whatever he wants you to do. And so these pious religious were telling Jesus that he wasn't, you know, they won't listen to him. And he's trying to call them into relationship, call them into sonship. And they're saying, no, you can't do that. You can't be in relationship with God. You have to live this other kind of way. And Jesus says, no. What you've, the lie you've bought into is that you create yourself and you thought that all these rituals and all these religious things were creating you and creating yourself and what you didn't realize is is you didn't create yourself you are created and what I need you to do is just be what I created you to be and that is a son or a daughter of God so when God comes in he comes in and releases us from the lie what's the lie? that we're not sons and daughters of God that when we respond to the gospel we come into the place of sonship and daughtership and we move out of the lie that we created ourselves, and we know that God created us and that he's our father and so we move out of the darkness and into the light basically coming into relationship with Jesus that this is the gospel of God that we would repent of our sin that we create ourselves, that we would repent of our own egos that we would repent of all this stuff that we're hanging on to and all this junk and that we would come like a a child, a newborn baby into the arms of God and say, I'm yours. That God is utterly unimpressed with your resume. So quit throwing up what you did for God to God. But God, I did this. Yeah. Yeah, he lets you do it. And this becomes the issue in Matthew chapter 7. When he says, many, many will call to me and say, Lord, Lord. He said, apart from me, I never. Oh, but God, we did great works. I used your name to manipulate and cast out devils and do, do works. He says, apart from me, I never knew you. You never released yourself from the lie that you're your own and stepped into son and daughterhood and became God's. That you became your own property instead of living up to the honest truth that you're God's property and that he loves you and you're a son and daughter of him. Coming to a close. John chapter 10. This is what ultimately gets Jesus in trouble. John chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus says, I'll give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, man, that sounds like good news. Verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. 
Now, Jesus quotes a psalm on them, Psalm 82. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? Now, Jesus isn't saying there that we're God's. But what he is saying, does it not say that each one of us are sons and daughters of God? Does it not say that God loves us in Jesus just the way he loved Jesus? And this is the reality that they just could not grasp. The news was too good. The news wasn't bad. It was too good. They couldn't believe that God could be that good and that loving and that accepting and that gracious and that humble. They just could not wrap their minds around it. And I think the same thing happens to us as we get in our mess, we get in our stuff, and we just let that begin to inform us who we are. And then we buy the lie that Satan is our father, that God's not anymore. And so we live under that reality of that lie and we label ourselves as a no good, dirty, rotten, whatever. And we say, I've tried that before, but I can't walk that thing out. I've done this, I've done that, but I can't make it work. And God is saying, if you would just come to me, if you would just enter into relationship with me, they picked up stones because Jesus was basically saying this, my father is your father. My father is your father. Which means that we're children of God. So what's the name that destroys the yoke of the enemy? What's the name? that destroys the works of Satan? What's the name that pulls us from the lie and enters us into truth? You know what that name is? Our Father. Our Father. Our Father. That through Jesus we can cry out, Our Father, and be saved. And this is the work of Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. No man goes to the Father except through Jesus. So Jesus is leading us. His whole message is about being connected unto the Father the way that He is connected unto the Father. That Jesus' redemption is to pull us out of the lie and pull us out of our mess and turn us around and face God and say, here's your daddy loves you. This is the work of God. <sighs> Would you bow your heads with me?